And when I, when I hear that, I'm like, man, I wish, I wish I heard that as a kid. I wish as a teenager I heard a, the good news like that. So thank you, dude. All right, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something I've never had to do before. I'm going to have to ask you to listen well. <laughs> so I obviously got something going on here. Someone tried to help me out, though. He taught me this really good waterboarding strategy for your sinuses. So I think I might try that to help get this, whatever it is, going on. Um, but we're going to get through this. It's fine. Uh, Rosemarie Miller. Uh, anybody know her? Everybody know Jack Miller? He was a Presbyterian leader. He's deceased now, but he was a Presbyterian leader of gospel renewal in the late 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, this is his wife. Uh, she describes a painful season in her life that lasted 10 years in a book called From Fear to Freedom. Uh, living as sons and daughters of God. There are about 10 books that I never stop reading. I just cycle through them. I, pick, I get done with one, then I go and grab the others. You need to find books that you never stop reading, that they feed your soul, and you just continually recycle through them. Don't read a good book and be like, oh, it's so good, and don't go back to it. I mean, keep rereading. I think I'm on my 10th read of this book right now. And it is phenomenally speaking to my soul, food for my soul. So I, I encourage you with that. When she was in this painful season, though, she quote, this is how she describes it. Are you ready for this? I was left with a shredding of my whole soul. What does that feel like to have your soul shredded? Well, many of you in this room know what that feels like because you're experiencing it right now. Uh, she's a pastor's wife, or was a pastor's wife, living a lifestyle of ministry, five children. She says, I was trying hard to maintain order in my life, only to plunge deeper into guilt and inward isolation. I kept resolving to try harder to work out my problems, but I could never get to the bottom of them. I engaged in intense self-analysis, but this did nothing to alleviate my growing guilt and anxiety. She was on vacation one summer, and she said she couldn't sleep at night because of the state and she looked up at the stars and she said to herself, is there a personal creator? Is there a God who really cares? Two days later, she's walking with her, wife, uh, walking with her husband uh, at a lake and she can't contain it anymore. And honesty just starts spewing out of her mouth and she says to her husband, God seems like a dark cloud to me. I don't even know if he exists. What do you do when your pain is greater than your faith? What do you do when God becomes to you the great unknown? My all-time favorite missionary was a Presbyterian guy who went to an unreached area on an island and took his new wife. And they were, she was pregnant. She dies, the baby dies. And he buries them both within like the first four months of being there. Now he's all alone. And he says, he buried them and he cried out to God and says, God, you are the great unknown to me. And then he says he lost his mind for about a year 
on an island. And then God slowly put him back together. What do you do when your spouse betrays you? When depression overwhelms you? When that sin won't go away? What do you do when you can't forgive someone and you've been rejected and you fail as a mother or you fail as a husband or you fail as an entrepreneur or you fail as an employee or you fail as a professor or you fail as a doctoral candidate? You don't get it. What do you do with the guilt and the wreckage when you sin against someone in ways you never thought you could? What do you do when you face challenges in your life that are bigger than your faith? What do you do when your faith is meager and small and inadequate to deal with life? You want to find out? Okay. Let's stand to read God's word. Luke 17, 5 through 6. Luke 17, 5, 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, Lord, um, we acknowledge that we come into this world uh, naked and filled with shame. And then we acknowledge we do something else wrong. We try to clothe ourselves, our silly fig leaves that just can't do the job. And then you come along and you clothe us. You clothe us with the sacrifice and the righteousness of another and shame goes away. And we acknowledge that that's what we desperately need to know, we desperately need to believe, and that that puts us back together again. And I pray that uh, you would do that kind of work, putting back together again work, uh, even though. I ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, Gatorade seems to work pretty good, so I might have to keep doing that. All right, so what do you do when you face challenges that are greater than your faith? What do you do when your faith is meager, it's scarce, it's scant, it's small, right? What do you do? Well, the answer is we do what the apostles do, right? I mean, look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So when you face challenges that are greater than your faith, it's only natural to ask God to add to your faith. It's only natural to say, well, God, could, could you inject some more faith into me? Can you inject greater, higher, more doses of faith in me? Increase my faith. Give me greater quantities of faith. Now, the context in which the disciples are asking for this is uh, found in verse 17, 1 through 4. In 1 through 2, Christians are sinning against Christians. 
And Jesus is basically saying, interestingly, it's inevitable. That's what's happened in 1 and 2 about the millstone. Look at verse 1. Temptations to sin. That's literally scandals to sin. This is Christians sinning against Christians. He's saying it's sure to come. It's inevitable. This happens. James Edwards, who's a Luke scholar, says Jesus warns the Christian community. He's warning us that the Christian community is inevitably a flawed community, but that doesn't make it a false community. Flawed doesn't make it false. He says, though, that if we don't believe this, he says that believers do not hear this and listen to this and let this be a part of the very fabric of their being in the church. He says what will happen is you'll be ineffective as a church member. He says you're going to go on to think that there's the reality of a perfect church and you're never going to find it and you're going to move from church to church from one level of disillusionment to another level looking for an illusion of the perfect church. Spurgeon had this guy that was asking him about his church and kind of grilling him about his doctrine, his theology, grilling him about how they do church leadership and their morality, their spirituality. And Spurgeon could sense that Stu not only was he a little intense, but he really thought pretty highly of himself. He was looking for this perfect church that was as perfect as him. And so Spurgeon said this to him. I absolutely love this. He says, look, there is no perfect church. But if you should find such a church... I strongly urge you not to join it because you'll ruin the whole thing. <laughs> I can't wait to say that to somebody. <laughs> so if I say it to you, do not be offended. I just am in a Spurgeon mode right now. So in light of the inevitability that, that we will sin against each other, that's the reality of the church. In light of that, the apostles, the disciples are hearing this and they're saying, oh God, Increase our faith to deal with stuff like that. That's the context. There's one more context that they're pleading for more faith, and it's not being able to forgive someone. That's what's happening in 17, 3 through 4. And here Jesus says very powerfully, forgive always, even serial sin. I mean, look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, in one day, and returns to you saying, I repent, forgive him. Not only that, you must forgive him. And so the disciples are like, good night. Who can do that? Oh, God, increase our faith so that we can do that. Forgive people like that, right? So it's only natural when you face challenges in your life that are greater than your faith that you say, oh God, please increase my faith. Inject me with some more faith. There's only one little itty-bitty problem with this plea. It's wrong. It's absolutely, completely wrong. Okay, Jeff. Most interpretations of verse 6 are just what I just said, that I just spent that first time coming through. Most interpretations go like this, Lord, it's just too great for me. Give me the faith to deal with it. That's how it goes. And then Jesus says something like this, yeah, you know, if you had faith, if you had that level of faith, you could do some pretty cool stuff. Cast things in the sea, uproot some trees, but too bad you don't. And so the message here 
the most common understanding of this text is Jesus is rebuking us for small faith. He's like, gosh, if you just had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could do marvelous things, but you don't. And a mustard seed, you know how small mustard seed is? Smallest seed on the planet. If you put it in your hand, it would be a speck of dust. You could barely see it. And so the point is, man, if you could just get your faith to the size of a speck of dust, you could do impossible, incredible things. But you don't. What is faith in this view? Think about it. What is faith in this view? This is why it's absolutely wrong. Not only because the text doesn't teach this, the Bible doesn't teach this, but faith becomes a work. It's a work that accomplishes mighty and marvelous things. The more faith you have, the mightier you are. The more faith you have, the more mighty and marvelous things you can do in your own life. And so what that says is that if you have stuff going on in your life that's not getting done, it's because you don't have enough faith. So get your faith in gear. Get it up to the size at least of a mustard seed. One of the leading evangelical scholars of Luke in the book of Acts is a seminary professor of mine. I took his advanced course in gospel exegetical works, right? Grammar, Greek grammar. And he says this very thing in his commentary. He says, this picture of faith right here is faith's ability to accomplish incredible things. The fundamental point is that faith can accomplish marvelous things. And even, y'all, even as I hear this, I, I, I want to say, man, if that's true, oh, God, increase my faith. Increase my faith to a level that I can do impossible, unimaginable mighty and marvelous things in my life, right? The problem with this is that this view of faith will shred your soul. Till you have nothing left. That's how dangerous this view is. In fact, Rosemary Miller says that it's that view of faith that shredded her soul for most of her Christian life. She said, faith is not a, it's not a work. When faith becomes a work and faith becomes willpower, even if it's God-assisted, you know, sometimes we think of the Christian life and we think of faith as like we're a little handicapped or we're, we got some, we got some vertigo issues and, and God's here, though, to help guide us along the way, to help us live this life and face these challenges that are greater than us. And she says, that's not faith, that's self-trust. Listen to what she says. Self-trust is a reliance on human moral abilities and religious accomplishments and visible securities. She said one of her major securities in her life was her need to have order and control and to be a good mom and to have a clean house. And her husband, she said, and she goes on to say, in my case, it was no unknowingly relying on these things and my past successes, my own abilities. And she said, I came to see that this mix of self-trust and faith produces a personal instability that shreds your soul. 
and crises and life changes expose it. What is faith? Whatever it is, it's not a work. What is faith? Now, the answer is in verse 6, but it's a completely different interpretation. It's absolutely stunning. And so I'm kind of going on a limb here because it is not the majority position. All right? So I'm going to say that, but I don't care. It's right. Verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, some of you here need to hear what I'm about to say because some of you are more academic, and you're not going to listen to me until I prove it. And so I'm going to prove it to you right now. This is what's called a first-class condition clause. Do you know what that means? And if you're academic, you know. If you studied any languages, you know. A first-class condition clause means this. It's assumed true for the sake of the argument. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, not you don't, but actually you do. You do, he says. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and you do, assumed true for the sake of argument, first-class condition clause, God's in the grammar, You could say, here's the point. Jesus is assuming that every single Christian has faith, faith the size of a mustard seed. Because biblical faith, real faith, is not about power. And it's not about increasing doses of strength. Biblical faith is about weakness. A speck of dust, barely visible. The mulberry tree was celebrated by Jewish culture and folklore and the religious leaders as this vast, tenacious root system. It was Jewish law in the Mishnah that you couldn't dig a well 75 feet, or you couldn't plant a mulberry tree 75 feet from from a mulberry tree. So you dig a well. you got to go 75 feet away to plant a mulberry tree. Its root system is so tenacious, and it's so vast. Do you take a stab? Just guess. Do you know how long mulberry trees live up to? 600 years. The mulberry tree is a symbol of absolute, indomitable immovability, permanence. No one uproots a mulberry tree and plants it in the sea. This is the point, y'all. Jesus is saying to you and me is, you cannot, I cannot, We cannot uproot the mulberry trees in our life. It's impossible. Faith gets this. And faith honestly embraces and celebrates weakness. I can't uproot the mulberry trees in my life. I, 
I can't. Faith embraces need. Faith embraces inability. Faith is, in its heart and essence, a mustard seed. A speck of dust. Inherently weak. Do you know that the greatest struggle that you and I have with the mulberry trees in our life right now is not our mulberry tree. It's our self-effort and our belief that we can uproot it and send it into the sea. And that mulberry tree removal effort is shredding our soul. Not even the mulberry tree's doing that. <coughs> no one uproots a mulberry tree and plants it in the sea. No one. No one except the Lord of the mulberry tree. You see, the answer was always there. It's on the tip of their tongues. It's right when they say and they speak to him in verse 5. I want you to look at it. The apostle said to the Lord, Luke, Luke is the only writer that uses apostles to indicate disciples. Because he wants you to know while he's telling the story about these bumbling group of folks. Yeah, these are the mighty apostles. That the good news and the New Testament that the Holy Spirit used to inspire that we get the scriptures by which the church is built on and which thunders down through church history for thousands and thousands of years in which the speaking of these words is God acting and on the move. And where do you find God? He's actively, visibly present, personally present in his speaking and his words. Just so you remember, when we start seeing these guys bumble their way through life, yeah, they're the apostles. So he's the only one that does that. He's also, he loves the title Lord for Jesus. He uses it all the time, more than all the other gospel writers. This is the only place in all the Bible where apostle and Lord in the gospel writers is mentioned in the same sentence. The word Lord has a long history in the Old Testament. The word Lord refers to God's victory. God's medals, God's accomplishments, God's achievements, God's works over all things, like a mulberry tree and like the great abyss called the sea. Be uprooted, go to the sea. In fact, this phraseology is used in Psalm 29 about the voice of the Lord unplanting cedar trees. Jesus alone uproots the mulberry trees in our lives. Alone. And then plants them in the great abyss. So what is faith? Faith is not a work. Faith is weakness trusting in the work of another. Faith is weakness, trusting in the work, Lord, of another. 
So in his death and in his resurrection, what happens is Jesus, the Lord of the mulberry tree, uproots all the mulberry trees in the cosmos and for sinners. That his death and his resurrection was an uprooting, casting into the abyss, cosmic, apocalyptic kind of work. That's why faith in verse 6 can say such a thing as this. You could say this mulberry tree. This is what faith says. Because of what Jesus has done, because he's the Lord, because he's the Lord of the mulberry tree, faith can say, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Because faith says this, I cannot uproot the mulberry trees in my life. I cannot uproot the hurt of, of spousal betrayal in my life. I cannot uproot the darkness of depression in my life. I cannot uproot that sin that won't go away in my life. I cannot uproot the wreckage and the guilt of sin that I have done that shocks me to death towards someone else. I cannot uproot the inability to forgive someone else. I can't make myself do it. Faith says, that's right, you can't. Because you're a mustard seed. Faith is a mustard seed. But faith also says, but there's one who did. There's an uprooter and a planter who's the Lord of the mulberry tree. And faith says, I trust the Lord of the mulberry tree. I trust him to root out and uproot and cast forever in the great abyss the mulberry trees of my guilt and my sin and my shame and all the wreckage that I do on a daily basis. And I trust the one that's done this once and for all is actively at work now in my life, experientially, functionally, not perfectly because it's not going to happen here. He's going to start addressing those mulberry trees and start working on them. And you can trust, faith says, I trust you to do that kind of work in me because you've already done the work once and for all for me. And then faith has this glorious look to the future when it knows it's happened, it is happening, and one day it'll be finally and fully, completely, no more mulberry trees. They're gone forever. Faith is not a work. Faith is weakness. Trusting in the work of another. This is why faith can say, look at how it, look at, look at this. Faith says, be uprooted and planted in the sea. That's why, that's why it's obeyed. That's why the mulberry tree says, you bet. Because Jesus is the Lord of the mulberry tree.